Halleluja. Father, we thank you according to your perfect plan fulfilled in the fullness of time for salvation. That reconciliation with you and sinners such as us was possible because of the work of Christ when he died for sinners and because of the work of the Holy Spirit who applied these truths to our heart. You, the triune God, the one who in the sum of your being satisfied the conditions for our salvation are worthy of our praise. These thoughts are so high and holy that no mere mortal could comprehend. But we look forward to our eyes being opened the wider as a result of your scripture proclaimed this day. If you do such a thing, it is because you're pleased to use the foolishness of preaching. Lord, and this opportunity, so far as the world understands, to do something amazing, confound the wise, to open up the eyes of our spiritual sight and the ears of our spiritual hearing, to hear the words of life that transcend the brokenness, the fallenness, and the reasoning of mere humans. We thank you when we approach your word. Therein we find the words of life. And therein is the revelation of God, who is before all and has ordained all. And after all is complete in this world, will exist forever. You, the Alpha and Omega, are the chief object of our affections because of the work of Jesus Christ. Open up our minds to comprehend and our hearts to appreciate and loose our tongue to proclaim the gospel. Furthermore, from the, as a result of the fruit of this service today, I pray, Lord, if there are any of the lost in the hearing of these words today as well, this message, that they will be so moved to repent of their sin, place their faith in Jesus Christ, and believe that in Him alone is the inheritance of salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray these things to the praise of His great name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, saints and members of the household of God, I hope we always remember what a blood-bought, gracious privilege it is to open up the Holy Scriptures and to worship our great God, even in pain and attention and heed to His Holy Word. Would you join me in doing so this morning by turning to Genesis 25 in your scriptures today? This morning we continue in our Genesis series as we pick up again on the story of the birth of two sons to the son of Abraham. So as you recall, the only child of promise to Abraham and Sarah was Isaac. Isaac finds himself in a similar situation Abraham and Sarah were at one point, yes, the beloved bride, Rebekah, is barren. Nevertheless, he prays, and God grants a son. Thus, from the womb of Rebekah, the covenant wife, the covenant bride, the covenant mother, if you will, the promise is once again secure. It's the title of this morning's message, From the Womb. The aim of today's sermon is to communicate the value of covenant inheritance. A theme in our text today as we see these events unfold, is the value of what is promised in the covenant and what is secured from the testator to those who will receive it, the heirs. And the value of such a thing is demonstrated by the attitudes of the sons born to Isaac and Rebekah. With that introduction, would you stand with me again out of reverence for the reading of God's Word and let us hear now the Holy Scriptures proclaimed to us in Genesis 25, verses 19 through the end of the chapter 34. Herein are the words of the Lord himself. Verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armian, of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armian. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Verse 22, the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. 
So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is this birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of God. You may be seated. One of my study Bibles, the Reformation Study Bible, summarizes and introduces the Genesis record of Isaac and his family in the following language. There's no way I could improve on this. It's such a great summary. An overview of the account of Isaac and his family dynamic and the covenant as it unfolds in the nature of his life and legacy. And I thought I'd read it to you. Quote, the account of Isaac is one of conflict between Isaac and Rebekah. We see that in our passage, verse 28. Chapter 27 is another example. Conflict between Isaac and Rebekah. Also conflict between Jacob and Esau, chapters 25, 27, 37. Jacob and Laban, chapters 29 30, and 31 through 31. Leah and Rachel, 28 and 30. And finally and decisively between Jacob and the angel of the Lord, chapter 32. The notes go on to say, Overarching the entire story is God's sovereign good pleasure. Romans 9, 10 through 12. He opens Rebekah's barren womb, establishing opens uh, Rebecca's barren womb, established the story, or established the supremacy of Jacob over Esau, contravened human customs regarding firstborn rights, and overrode Isaac's patriarchal authority, Laban's social position, and Esau's might. Close quote. Pausing there, so do you, do you see two major themes? One is Isaac's life and legacy are marked by conflict, conflict between all members of his family. His sons have this irreconcilable difference. He and his wife are often at odds. He and his uh, father-in-law don't get along. This marks his journey his entire life. Nevertheless, his legacy is also marked by the sovereign hand of God in spite of all these other factors. A major point featuring the juxtaposition of our sin and God's plan of salvation in spite of us doing everything it would seem in our power to screw it up. A major feature in this section of Genesis is the purposes of God in His glory and, and salvation advancing in spite of all apparent obstacles standing in the way of His will. Can anything come in between God and His purposes to secure for Himself a covenant people to the praise of His great name? Isaac and his legacy is testimony that even intractable, long-standing family feuds and endless conflict cannot thwart God's purposes. There is some consolation in that. Time and again, the covenant line is threatened by the fallout of the fall. Human sin, degradation, and everything that comes with the consequences of Eden and the transgressions of our first parents and the sin nature inherited by all of their lineage, time and again it would seem that the covenant line is threatened, almost snuffed out. Would the Messiah come? Where is He? How will He be born under such circumstances? Who will preserve hope for the future? The fallout of the fall seems overwhelming. Yet time and time again, the plans of God prevail, notwithstanding systemic conflict and sin. In our text today, the preliminary setting, so the first setting of our story today, this account, is within the womb of Rebecca herself. And a fight has broken out between two brothers while they remain in her womb. And it's intense. Indeed, from the womb there is conflict within and without, including barrenness and strife. Before she was pregnant, there was this conflict. Growing older, just like Abraham and Sarah, yet no covenant child, no child whatever, as of yet, conflict, barrenness. 
And then she becomes pregnant with twins. Wow, a double blessing. Yet these twins are warring, as it were, fighting even in the womb. Yet, nevertheless, even in spite of this, through the womb there is miraculous provision. The line of the Messiah would continue. The covenant line of the Messiah continues, anticipating, in fact, the means of the incarnation to come. Yes, hope would come through the womb of the covenant line. Christ, the true significant Son, would be supernaturally conceived, just as we see again and again in the record, supernatural birth conception happening, barren women receiving children and so forth. There would come a son born to a virgin, even as his people, Jesus Christ's own people, would be born again. Another miraculous conception, spiritually speaking, by the Spirit of God. Furthermore, this people, that this covenant people that God preserves for himself, is elect even from the womb. And scriptures go on to make it clear that this is part of the message of our account today. Thus, from the womb, of the covenant mother and bride, Rebecca, the story of redemption continues to unfold, and we hasten to add, in spite of the sinfulness of all the players, all the characters in this account. Really profound. There are three evidences, or there are three aspects of grace that I want to highlight in our passage today. A heading could go like this. Isaac's family circumstances demonstrate grace. Now, grace is always contrasted to our sin. There's plenty of sin to set up a contrast, but it serves as a stage to display the amazing grace of God. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace appears all the more glorious when in fact it is not deserved. How great the grace that saved a wretch like me, we sing. There's a reason why that song has endured us so beloved and famous. It's because the glory of God in salvation is made all the more manifest and glorious when the depth of sin, depravity, the human condition is so great. That's a huge factor in our story today. Isaac's family circumstances thus demonstrate the following. Number one, condescending grace. And we'll define that term as a reminder and explain. Number two, sovereign grace. Grace that is distributed by God's will ultimately alone. And number three, covenanted grace. Grace that exists within a framework of God's covenant, His order, His promises, His plan for salvation. Isaac's family circumstances demonstrate these three. Even the sinfulness, the strife, the conflict, it serves as a stage to glorify and to magnify the grace of God. Yes, number one, even His condescending grace. Think of that word condescend. So we're familiar with condescension as speaking low, being a snob, like an elitist personality, thinking little of somebody else, like uh, slighting their dignity. Oh, he's so condescending. This word with respect to theology, means something entirely different. And I just want to remind you of this. We've used this word before, but it's important to reset its definition in our mind. Con means with. Descend means to stoop low. So to stoop down, to be with us, is the definition of God's condescending grace. Now, kids, um, have you ever talked to an adult and you had a question? So let's say you go up to your dad and you tug on his pant leg And your dad goes like this. He goes down on one knee, and then he talks to you face to face. Now, your dad, kids, is an authority over you, and it's kind of obvious the difference between you and him. He's way taller, in some cases twice as tall. He's got way more life experience than you. He has authority to set your schedule, to change your allowance, to punish you if you break the rules. But in that act, what is your dad doing? He's stooping low to be with you. He's condescending. Though he could pull rank and say, I'm not going to talk to you right now. In that act of stooping low, condescending, he is speaking to you on your level. He will likely speak to you in more simple language than he might give a PowerPoint presentation before an investment committee or something. And he will speak to you as a father to a son whom he loves by stooping low to be with his child. This is a picture of condescension, stooping low to be with. Now, if there is a, we can recognize that distinction between life experience, dignity, authority, even stature between a father and a little son. How much greater the difference between us as lowly sinners and the holiness of an almighty God? Not only is God bigger than us in stature as we think of it in linear terms, but he is so much more holy than us that a sinner abiding in his presence 
is not worthy of him in least. In other words, we have no right to be in the same room, to have audience before a holy God because we are corrupt and decrepit in our sin and not worthy of the glorious atmosphere that surrounds the Lord in his holiness and worthiness. A picture of this in the scriptures is Isaiah chapter 6. And do you remember that temple vision? Isaiah gets a sneak peek into the glories of the unadulterated presence of God, where creatures specially designed with wings to cover their faces, I imagine to shield them from the searing glory, glorious light of the almighty heavenly Father, exist nonstop, 24-7, to praise Him, echoing thrice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. What's wrong with this picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with this picture in Isaiah 6. It's Isaiah, and he knows it. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm uncomfortable in the presence of an almighty God. I don't deserve to be here because of my sin. Yet somehow, and the coal represents God getting down on that one knee. His lips are purified by an act of atoning grace. And in so doing, the almighty, holy God stoops low to be with Isaiah. And in that act of atoning grace, symbolized by that coal, which anticipated Jesus Christ dying for Isaiah's sins, audience is secured with the Father. There is condescending grace in this story. We've already remarked in the introduction how wicked and how fraught with conflict this family is. Now, by today's terms, don't you think that this is a dysfunctional family? I mean, everybody's at odds with one another all the time. It's nothing but strife, nothing but raised voices, nothing but feuding. You know, from, uh, for years it would seem. Nevertheless, God speaks directly to Isaac. He speaks directly to Rebekah. And this is to feature his condescending grace. Notice in verse 20, Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Armian, and of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Armian. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The Lord heard and answered this prayer by Isaac directly and personally in his condescending grace. Isaac prays, Rebekah inquires, and Yahweh, the covenant keeper, high and holy one, the self-existent I am, the mighty creator of heaven and earth, the maker, sustainer, and planner of all that is and all that will be, stoops low and answers this lowly, strife-filled, dysfunctional family's prayer in his condescending grace. Both Isaac and Rebekah, there is something admirable about this, however. They take their concerns to the Lord in personal prayer. And in his extraordinary grace, his hesed, the Bible will go on to say, which is his steadfast loving kindness, his covenant-keeping love, and his has said, the Lord hears them and reveals to them his word. Has the Lord stooped low to you today? Insofar as his word is correct, is rightly proclaimed to you even now from this pulpit, it is his has said love, revealing his will and character through you from, to you from the pages of Holy Scripture. Do we deserve this precious book that has come to us at the cost of the martyr's blood? and was written upon the inspiration of men moved upon by the Holy Spirit, God breathed self-revelation from the Holy God, we do not. Yet this is proof of God's condescending love to you, and to the degree that He's opened up even a bit of its truth to your understanding, and your ears love the ring of the gospel, you have experienced the hesed, the faithful love of a father. Isaac brings his request before the Lord in prayer, admirably so. His father had sought to secure covenant promises through the flesh, taking for himself concubines, Keturah, and also Hagar, denying in that act, betraying small faith that the covenant bride, Sarah, would produce for him a son. But now in the next generation, there is something amazing about Isaac, Isaac's uh, learning of the lesson and his commitment in this regard, 
The Lord answers his prayer as he takes his concerns before him. And this, we must understand, is personal communion with a holy God. This is condescending grace. This is Isaac in fellowship with the, God, with the Lord, the God of his father, ultimately through Jesus Christ. There is uh, just a profound reality in this. Even Hebrews 11.20 tells us of Isaac's faith in this regard. But he's not the only one. The Lord granted his prayer. Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But now there's another occasion for crying out to God. Verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? I'm told in the original construction, though this is just a phrase, this is an anguish cry of pure lament. I don't know why I even exist or live if I have to endure anguish of this level. So ladies, I know you relate more than us guys, but fathers in the room, we've experienced it from the outside. When there's a baby inside that's pretty active, the kicking and stuff and the movement, isn't it a glorious thing? It's so delightful to just see like, on my wife's, you know, during the course of pregnancy, you get later on and uh, you see that just, you know, that hay, like that roundhouse kick or whatever. Like my boy's just going to be awesome at UFC. And you see that roundhouse kick, like tracing a line across the belly. And it's something really amazing and delightful to experience that kicking within the womb. But this was something different entirely. It's almost something beyond our comprehension. The mother's intuition, I imagine, of Rebecca, and also the evidence was such that somehow she knew that activity in her room was two uh, children within her fighting, fighting. And so instead of that delightful kick and that activity of a baby developing, she somehow realized, she knew that there was strife going on with no one to mediate, and these two uh, boys, as we later come to find out, are at war within her womb. And this was such a heavy thought for her that she cried out to the Lord, if this is what you have ordained for me, why do I even exist? Despairing even unto life itself. Because what is supposed to be the joyful expectation of children is in fact a war contained within her body. Just an unimaginable, horrific circumstance. The Lord answers. She went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Rebekah inquires, the Lord answers. The answer is not easy, but the answer illustrates that God is sovereign, and there is purpose, intention, and prophecy, and you could argue that this prophecy right here is central to the text. Now, why is this significant? Well, before we mention that, let us just pause and note God's condescending grace to Rebekah. This is a woman like Hagar who has a direct audience with the Lord. She inquires and the Lord answers. Now, note, as we move along in the text of the Old Testament, this kind of communion will be mediated by a whole priesthood and a whole sacrificial system. But anticipating the priesthood of Jesus Christ, if you will, and the coming Messiah sacrifice to come, there are these moments where God interacts directly with his people, bypassing the ordinary typological priesthood of that day. And one could say this was a mediated relationship. In other words, by the promises of the father Abraham, who was something of a covenant head, the servant makes an appeal to him, by the God of my father Abraham, would you show me who the wife of Isaac is to be? And in a similar heart, Isaac prays, By the God who made promises to my father Abraham, would you release my wife's womb to bear children? And, I, and Rebecca, in a similar heart, I prayed to the God who made covenant promises, called me forth from the land of my origin to be the bride to carry forth the Messiah who will come. Would you listen to me on these grounds and hear my inquiry? I am vexed even unto life itself. And as these uh, two believers, faithful ones, however fraught with sin, Isaac and Rebekah, lift up their petition. The future credit, or the, the work of the future Messiah is credited to their account and upon the promise of the Messiah, mediating, mediating their relationship with God, they are heard and answered by the Lord. This is a profound gospel reality, a little beyond our scope to comprehend. Nevertheless, 
in, your in time that you may have, dwell upon the glories of that relationship that was anticipating Jesus Christ, the mediator and the high priest, even at this time. God's condescending grace is evident here. Now, what about what Jesus is, or I'm, I'm sorry, what about what the Lord is proclaiming of the future of Rebekah's womb and lineage and so forth? Well, this is an echo, it's a reiteration, it's, an, it's a recalling of Eve's legacy. In other words, the condescending grace on Rebekah herself, though it comes with hardship and trial, nevertheless, it comes with the privilege of Eve's legacy. In the Garden of Eden, right from day one of the fall, in Genesis 3.15, the Lord says by way of gospel promise that there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. But nevertheless, it is worth enduring the pain of childbirth because there will come a seed of the woman who would one day crush the serpent's head. It's worth the pain, Rebecca could translate or you could interpret, it's worth the pain and the anguish of the strife within you, knowing that through this means, although it is fraught with conflict and trial, nevertheless, the stronger shall serve the, uh, or the, the one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Somehow, in the midst of this conflict, against the odds and against the norm and the cultural you know, expectations of the day, God will preserve for her, through this means, a future Messiah who would crush the serpent said. Eve was prophesied pain and conflict, but she was also prophesied a covenant son. And Rebecca in her legacy likewise. And so in faith, she bears these children. Turns out there's twins in the womb, and they're fighting even at delivery. We'll read that in a moment. Do not miss this staggering uh, reality, though, that Eve's legacy is continued by this means. Eve was given two sons as well. And it's interesting to think of Eve's barrenness, so to speak, in the garden before the fall. In other words, there is a similarity. There are parallels between their two, the two experiences. It would appear that Eve herself was barren in the garden. But how much worse might uh, she expect her banishment to be? In other words, if Eve and Adam had not borne a child prior to the fall... How much worse would she expect the fruit of her womb to be by way of barrenness or strife or otherwise after? Nevertheless, God, in His grace, will provide a Savior through her womb. And she, too, bore two sons, and that record is in 4, 1, and 2. And there was, at least in the record, immediately, immediate conflict between them. You know them as Cain and Abel. And the first murder was committed, and the son of promise, they would have thought, Abel is dead. Nevertheless, think of this, God's grace, the covenant will continue. God's grace to sustain the promise is evident. Though the covenant hopes are killed in Abel, they are resurrected in the birth of Seth. The covenant hopes are killed in Abel from our perspective, Adam and Eve's perspective. Nevertheless, those hopes are resurrected in the birth of Seth. 4.25-26 through 26 says as much. And we can apply this principle to Sarah and Abraham's experience. Though the hopes of the covenant future are dead in the barrenness of her room, they're resurrected through the birth of the miraculous son, Isaac. Though the hopes for Rebekah and Isaac are dead, she's also barren, and there's this strife and conflict in her womb, she might think that one of these boys will kill the other, even inside of her. Nevertheless, the hopes of the covenant will be resurrected as God, through unlikely means, raises up Jacob to continue the line of the Messiah. Thus, in the midst of all this sin, all this conflict, all this difficulty, all this anguish, all this hardship, all this sorrow, the condescending grace of God is all the more evident, and the promise continues. Major point number two. Isaac's family circumstances demonstrate God's condescending grace, Secondly, his sovereign grace. He is in charge. He indicates as much in this prophecy. The Lord himself says, There are two nations in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. In this prophecy, it is evident that God has sovereign purposes even in this strife. There are surpassing prophetic realities for what Rebecca and Isaac and their family are called to endure. There's more going on here. In fact, the more going on includes a surprising anointing 
the one who will carry forth the hope for the covenant is the least likely. One shall be stronger than the other, yet the older shall serve the younger. And this pattern continues through the course of redemptive history. Joseph has a dream. Kids, do you remember Joseph's dream with the stars and the moon and, and, and stuff and the sheaves of grain? You guys remember that? And what did that indicate? It indicated that all of the family, even his mom and dad and his siblings would bow down to him one day. But Joseph was among the youngest, among the least significant. You know, some of his brothers wanted to kill him. Instead, they compromised, sold him into slavery. And in spite of these conditions, what did God do? He raised up the weaker. He raised up the younger. He raised up the banished and abandoned and unlikely one to be the ruler. And in this picture is the unlikely anointing of securing the covenant to come. So now it's, you fast forward in covenant history. It's time to choose a king so we can be like other nations. And so there's a line of king candidates, right? And who would you choose? Well, perhaps you would choose with the people. The one that looks like Dwayne Johnson or whatever, head and shoulders above the rest, looks like he can take charge, command an army, lead men. Head and shoulders above them all was King Saul. And so he was the people's choice. Was he the anointed king? No. There was a call, and even the prophet was unaware. He, then, then the sons of Jesse are paraded before him. Nope, not him. Nope, not him. Goes through all 11. Do you have any other sons, Jesse? Yes, I do. But he's just the youngest. He's insignificant. He's just the shepherd boy, calling. So they do. And yes, lo and behold, the anointing oil is poured upon the least of the brothers, King David. And what does King David become? A type of Christ. What Jesus is prophesying to Rebecca herself is how to recognize God's purposes in the course of redemptive history. And I'm here to tell you, if the people who crucified Jesus had read these words with spirit-enabled understanding, they may not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because once again, at the time of Christ's arrival, he had no comeliness about, or he, he was humble in his visage, in his presence. And there was nothing very significant by the judgment of man that we should look upon him and say, there's the king of the universe. No, he was born in a manger from a family of obscurity. He wandered in the wilderness. The son of man had no place to lay his head. He uh, fellowshiped and he fraternized with the lowly and the sinner and those who are not considered high society, important, powerful. The dignitaries ended up hating him because the people were gathered to him, but there came a day the people turned against him as well. And at that dark day when Jesus our Lord was crucified, this prophecy was fulfilled. The unlikely, the weaker, uh, was serving uh, as the mediator, as the very sacrifice, as the one who would secure the covenant, as the significant son. And Jesus Christ did not stay meek and mild and lowly, forever. But he rose and ascended to rule and reign at the right hand of God the Father. And he's there right now in his resplendent pre-incarnate glory, retaining the body which he acquired in the incarnation forever and ever, commanding the attention of those seraphim that we mentioned earlier. But you see, this was something that God had prophesied in the scriptures all the way back to Isaac and Rebekah. The promise is going to come through unlikely means. So don't be discouraged if it seems like the church of today, the Christian witness, is backward, poor, marginalized, rejected, scoffed at, and uh, you know, chased out of the public square. Even today, there's principled application. The voice of the Lord through His church, if we remain firm and committed on the Word of God in unlikely ways, the kingdom of God and the gospel will triumph. It has pleased the Lord to use the rejected few, the younger, the one who is not culturally qualified, the one who is despised and rejected and mocked by others. Better to be counted among that group, only that God would be glorified when he uses unlikely means to advance his kingdom. We'll have a mission report later in this service. And that mission report will be proof to you that God is doing powerful things in impoverished areas of our world. He's using unlikely individuals in spite of themselves, raising them up to be powerful proclaimers of his gospel. And this is evidence of the prophecy that would mark the purposes of God uh, as Mary herself sang and Hannah echoed all the way back to debase the proud and exalt the lowly. And so recognize the Messiah on God's terms, not your own. This is sovereign grace. Now there are parallels in the experience of each generation of those who are in the covenant. Why is this? In other words, as we continue to read Isaac's story, you'll see, wow, this sounds really similar to what Abraham experienced. And it seems like there's a cycle going on. 
the term in academically is recapitulation. It's like a re-going over. It's like a, a reprise, rehearsal um, of prior events. And what does this communicate to us? Well, these parallels that we're beginning to see, even in our text today, you know, miraculous birth, overcoming barrenness, uh, strife in the household, nevertheless, God preserving his covenant. These experiences of one covenant generation to another bear remarkable similarities because they're means of gospel revelation. God is underscoring and repeating for the benefit of ins and instruction of the covenant heirs patterns of gospel truth. And you'll see many of those through the course of the Old Testament. But as you do so, just mark those in your study. This is patterns of gospel truth. These are the ways that God used even the events and the relationships of the covenant family to communicate his profound promise of salvation. That's the parallels. There's also contrast. Notice the tension. It really builds. Verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. And notice the contrast. On the one hand, the first came out red. So imagine a red, hairy baby. Uh, how many Star Wars fans? Uh, I can't resist this analogy. Something like Chewbacca. That's what I have in my mind. Probably not that hairy. But imagine Chewbacca uh, on Rogaine with really red hair. Weird, right? First came out red, his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Name kind of relates to red or something of that nature. Afterward, later, it's changed to Edom, which more is in accord with that redness. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. And this kind of scheming and chasing, biting at his uh, brother's heels, this would mark the uh, legacy of Jacob as well. We see that continue to unfold in the text. But from day one, there's conflict and strife, and the character of these individuals is revealed even in their birth, even in the womb. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, uh, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So you see on the one hand and then the other hand, tons of contrast. Esau, I made just two columns. He was the firstborn. He was red. He was hairy. He was a hunter. He was a man of the field, and he was Isaac's favorite. Jacob, secondborn, quiet tent dweller, schemer. He was a mama's boy. He was mom's favorite. These contrasts kind of set the tone of the narrative. It sets up this conflict in striking ways, even from the womb and through the course of their lives as they begin to grow up. And what does this illustrate? It illustrates what we open this sermon with, that God works through sins and in spite of sins by sovereign election to accomplish His glory in salvation. Turn with me to Romans 9 as I give you that thesis statement again. God works through sins and in spite of sins by sovereign election, you could add grace, to accomplish his glory in salvation. This is a staggering thought. In Romans chapter 9, Paul is laying out the most thorough treatment of this, of salvation, the means why, whereby we are cleansed of sin and that eternal life is secured. In the middle of it, we have reference to the experience of Jacob and Esau. In Romans 9, verse 8 through 16, we'll read, this means, that, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You see, who gets the glory in the end? The model son, Jacob, uh, because he's deserving of grace and promotion? No. Who gets the glory in the end? Jacob is chosen in spite of his character. God gets the glory. 
God is sovereign in salvation. He's sovereign in election. And the experience of these two boys in the womb is, serves to illustrate the reality that you love Jesus Christ because he first loved you and gave his son to die for you. You remember our message last week? That first point, arrested affections. It is the grace of God that compels your oaths, your following of him. It's not your following him that compels the grace of God. Jacob begins to repent. The conflict in his life continues until the very end. He's in conflict with the Lord himself and finally submits. And God uses this entire scope of life experiences to subdue his son. And, I, and Jacob does grow in his walk and in his faith, just as Abraham did. But what was it that compelled those two men to grow in their faith? It was the grace of God. The promises of the covenant came first, and then the change in the heart came second. And this is a picture of election. And if you're a believer in this room, it happened to you. And in the case of Jacob and Esau, it happened even before they were born. God had called them, set his purposes upon them. And why is this the case? Because our God is sovereign, grace is sovereign, and he, as a result, alone gets the glory. The objector may ask, well, is there no will involved? No, there's a will involved, but it is God who is the primary cause. He's the first mover. He does the initial action, and then our will is an effect of God's. It is not by will, after all, of man that we are saved. John himself tells us in the prologue of his very book, but it is the will of God that is responsible for securing our hope and salvation. Yes, there's a mystery here. Nevertheless, how should we respond to these truths? giving God all the praise, giving Him all the glory, repenting of legalism, and looking to His grace to motivate our obedience. Our faith and our obedience comes when we realize that God is sovereign even in salvation. This story tells us as much. Final point this morning. Isaac's family circumstances demonstrate condescending grace, sovereign grace, and finally covenanted grace. Now God's love is not capricious. God is no philanderer. God uh, does not, uh, when God secures a bride for himself, he does so by keeping the covenant ultimately. And since his bride is unfaithful, a price must be paid. These are covenant terms. These are realities that must be in place. And so the covenant must continue. God's love and salvation that hold out hope for reconciliation with sinners, it's not capricious, it's not arbitrary, it's bound by covenant. Do you take for granted this reality? You see, Esau did. He despised his birthright. What did the birthright represent? It represented the hope of covenant continuing. The hope of covenant, the very means that God had ordained for salvation to continue, Esau negotiated for his appetites in the moment. We turn back to our passage in Genesis 25, and we get this little snapshot that is typical of the orientation of the soul of these boys, now men, presumably 29 and following. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. The theme of red comes up again. Hence the parenthetical statement in verse 30. Therefore his name was called Edom, which means red. Verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob says, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I was listening to uh, a minister who had preached through this, and he was speaking to his kids and family devotions about this story. And one of the kids said, well, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? Is Jacob the good guy and Esau the bad guy? I'm not sure I quite follow. Well, God is the good guy in spite of two bad guys, Jacob and Esau. Now, there is a little bit of a difference between the two. At least Jacob valued the inheritance, but he didn't value God's means. He sought through kind of scheming and conniving ways to secure it for himself, so not speak well of his character. Nevertheless, worse still was Esau who is willing to sell for a bowl of soup, which would satisfy, you know, the desire of the belly for calories for what, maybe 8, 10 hours, maybe 12 if you eat really a bunch, and then his stomach would be craving food again. He is willing to despise, to reject, and to put up for sale 
that which is of most precious and holy. It's the difference between the bread of life and the daily bread. For one morsel of daily bread, Esau traded it for the bread of life. Uh, now, this was the negotiation that went on. And what was at issue was the birthright, okay? The negotiation and the birthright. Again, the birthright represents the right to rule the family, the inheritance, and more broadly speaking, the covenant promises that will continue to the next generation. Turn to Hebrews 12 for our last reference this morning. That helps us to understand the significance of what we just read in this story. This is Hebrews 12, verses 11 through 17. For the moment, the scriptures say, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that, listen, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one, verse 16, is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Boom, right there. That's the lesson. Do not be unholy, crass, pagan, worldly, wicked, deceived, an unbeliever like Esau, who sold his birthright. He traded the promise of eternal life for a single meal. This is a dramatic illustration but it, it's a stand-in, symbolically, for every kind of sin. What is sin if not trading the promise of eternal life for the promise of our appetite satisfied right now? It's a few moments in this fleeting vapor of a life of pleasure at the cost of eternal life. It's the apple in the garden that looks so good that immediately spiritually kills Adam and Eve when they consume it recognize the danger of sin and the value of eternal life, lest you be like Esau, who would negotiate the inheritance of glory for his immediate pleasure, his short-term gain, and his present appetites and preferences and desires. Verse 17, For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Think of kids, this is especially for you. Growing up in a Christian home, many of you kids, in the sound of my voice, your mom and dad love Jesus. Well, I pray for you that you always value and treasure and love the fact that your mom and dad love Jesus and teach you about Jesus. There will be a test in your life one day where you'll be tempted to take it for granted. That means not care about it too much. It's like, oh, we always love Jesus. That's just what we did in our home. Other parents, they did other things and so on and so forth. If you have a testimony of the love of Jesus in your home, you have a birthright, so to speak. You have an absolutely precious gift. One more valuable than the most amazing boat tooling around on the chain. One more valuable than the mansion, you know, situated on that peninsula out on Rush Lake. Just to use a local example of, you know, I made it kind of money. None of that can compare. In fact, if you spent your life pursuing those kinds of things, you would be Esau. You would trade eternal life for a mansion that's so big you can't get the mold out of it because no one's in there enough in the short term. Don't be like Esau. Kids, you have an incredible birthright, an incredible gift, and the testimony of Christianity in your home. Always treasure that. I pray that the Lord would move you to do so. Adults, the application is equally for you as well. You know, the Christian life is difficult. Sometimes you might relate to Rebecca. Everything from the inside to the outside is nothing but conflict and strife and stress. And you might cry out with Rebecca, why are you doing this to me? If this was your plan, why am I even alive? How many of us in our weakest moments can relate to that? Well, don't in the short term because of the difficulty and trial despise the eternal glory, power, blessing, reward of life purchased for you, the cost of Jesus Christ. Remember his condescending grace in giving you that gift and the gospel. And remember his sovereign grace in even ordaining trials for his gospel purposes for you in the meantime. And remember, finally, his covenanted grace that these things come by precious, 
preservation by the Holy Spirit through a long line of people who had to have more faith than us in a sense, not having the fullness of revelation in the Bible, but hanging on to that promise that God will supply through the seed of the woman, someone to crush the serpent's head one day. This is the message. Let me close with this. What is our inheritance? What is that thing that we ought to treasure so? Well, Hebrews 12 continues to say this in verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of all covenant sons in the past from Abel, to Cain, or from Abel to the blood of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, none of that, none of that blood could satisfy. None of it could, be, could redeem. However, there was a birthright that would ultimately be secured through the blood of a significant son to come. And he, the sufficient sacrifice and mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ, in the line of Jacob, in the line of Isaac and Rebekah, Abraham and Sarah, of uh, Adam and Eve, the line of Seth, so on and so forth. He is our inheritance. He is our birthright. So to, our birthright is secured, so to speak, through him. And this is what we gain in him. A festal gathering with innumerable angels, the glories of heaven, ours one day, the city of the living God, our eternal habitation. Oh, what sweet reward we have in eternal future. Do remember this again. How can we be more faithful and obedient? Consider the grace of God. Consider your reward. Consider your inheritance. Consider the cost that secured it for you. The covenant shed blood of Jesus Christ. And as you do so, you will not be like Esau, who despised his birthright, but you will join us each Sunday as you're able here and worshiping God for saving a wretch like you, though you did not deserve it. Let us close and transition in prayer. Father, we thank you for the message of hope eternal in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We recognize that this plan of covenant hope was secured by the Holy Spirit through unlikely means, just glorifying you all the while through the course of redemptive history to the point where we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our precious Savior, our only Lord, the one who mediates for us and has satisfied the payment of our sins, uh, of our sins judgment. Thank you so much for Jesus, our Lord. I pray that we would treasure our birthright today, that we would recognize that it has come at the cost of all these circumstances and especially the work of Calvary. And then after treasuring this holy gift for believers in this room, may you equip us to share it and may it motivate us to whatever you've called us to do, whether missionary overseas or testifying to salvation to our neighbor next door. Finally, if there are any lost in the hearing of this message, I pray that they would repent and believe and secure through Christ alone the birthright of eternal life. To the praise of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we pray. Amen.